Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Well, the dust is settling after the June 5th primary. There was some serious fence mending this week between Gavin Newsom and Antonio Viragosa. They agreed to put behind the vitriol of the Democratic primary race for governor for the sake of party unity and to take on a common threat of Donald Trump and the GOP candidate John Cox. But along with it come some potentially serious repercussions for the charter school industry. We'll also talk about a major change in how community colleges will be funded and an effort to target the lowest performing students in our K-12 schools, at least as measured by standardized tests. There's an interesting backstory to that, John, which you will tell us about. Yes, I will. But first, let's talk about the peace talks in L.A. between Newsom and Villaraigosa. What actually happened? Well, Newsom and Villaraigosa met for breakfast at the Homegirl Cafe. That's actually run by a nonprofit organization that works with formerly incarcerated men, former gang members, and so on. It really was on Villaraigosa's turf. Right. And uh, they basically came out and said, we're in this together. We are putting the vitriol of the campaign behind us. And uh, Viragosa said the most important thing is to fight the threat that Trump administration policies and John Cox, who's running basically on a Trump platform, uh, represent for California. A lot of people are wondering what is Viragosa going to be doing now after really it was a, a crushing defeat on June 5th, only got 13% of the vote, despite the fact that uh, charter school advocates poured in $23 million to support his campaign. But Newsom more or less said, Viragosa is a California treasure, that he (laughs) admires him enormously, and that he would support him on whatever he wants to do, and kind of implying that potentially there was some role for him in his administration. Well, there's nothing to be gained by them for fighting. But there is some still, and an important issue of charter schools. That was an issue in the campaign. What do you think, Lewis? Where does that stand? Well, it was an issue to the extent that it was discussed. I wouldn't say this is something that was front and center for the average voter, but uh, the charter school advocates, at least some of the more significant ones, did, as we just mentioned, pour in a lot of money to support Virgos, and they did run some pretty negative ads against Newsom. They said he oversold his achievements, he was boasting, he was making false claims, sort of suggested that he barely showed up for work one day a week. And so, you know, one of the questions is, is what impact will this have on Newsom's views on charter schools? And he basically said at this peace breakfast or after the peace breakfast that no, he said the campaign, putting the negativity behind him. But he did actually say one thing that charter school advocates would be concerned about, and that is that he would support legislation that Governor Jerry Brown has vetoed many times that would impose greater transparency requirements in the operations of charter schools. And John, you've covered this legislation, I think, (laughs) probably frequently during the whole time Governor Brown has been in office. What legislation is he talking about? It was a series of bills over the years that would have required charters to comply with the Brown Act and the Public Records Act and also the Political Reform Act in 1974, which would have required conflict of interest regulations on charter school board members and staff. And uh, I think over the years, the Charter School Association was concerned that these restrictions on board members in terms of conflict of interest would make it very difficult for wealthy backers 
to actually put money or to support charter schools if they were on the board of a charter school. That's exactly right. In fact, most charters follow the Brown Act and the Public Records Act. And in fact, some authorizers require them to. So it does come down to that issue and the feeling that, look, a lot of folks give money. But they're on the boards. They're nonprofit boards. There's nothing. There's no self-interest for them in most cases. I mean, there, there have been a few highly publicized. For the most part, they get involved and they donate to charter schools and they're on the board. And this would be a disincentive or discourage them or even potentially put them at risk as board members. Very interesting that Newsom is definitely laying down a marker about how he would differ from Jerry Brown, uh, at least in this regard. Yeah, I think this represents a failure of Jerry Brown to settle this issue after eight years, and it is going to leave the charter schools open to a passage of bill that they didn't want. One thing Jerry Brown really pushed on, didn't waste any time doing before he leaves office, was to institute a really new way of funding California's community colleges. Yeah, basically, Jerry Brown took the local control funding formula for K-12 and applied it to the community colleges. This is how it's going to work. They're looking at this pot of money, big pot of money, $7.5 billion in general purpose funds that goes to the community colleges. Initially, they want to take 60% of that money. That will go to community colleges the way it's always gone, which is based on enrollment of students, actually attendance at the third week of the fall semester. Right. And then what they want to do is take another 20% of that and give it to community colleges based on the number of low-income students essentially attending colleges. And then the last 20% will be based on actually the performance of students, based on several measures such as how long it takes for them to get their degrees, transfer rates, and so on. This is a, really a sea change in how community colleges have been funded. And that's very different from K-12, which is not based on performance. In K-12, there's billions of dollars are going to districts based on their enrollment of low-income students, English learners, and so on. But the districts get the money regardless of how the students do. Right. The formula is trying to address what's really a significant problem, which is that barely half of students who start in the California community colleges never complete their course of study in a reasonable period of time. I see. We have on the line Jessie Ryan, who is executive vice president of the Campaign for College Opportunity. She was intimately involved in the final negotiations that got this funding formula through the legislature. I asked Jessie how significant these reforms actually are. This is a huge deal. So, so currently, the way we fund community colleges, we rely largely upon a census that's taken at the third week of enrollment. So a student makes three weeks into the semester plus one day, and the college is fully funded for their enrollment. The new funding formula really looks at marrying, as I said, enrollment with a focus on student completion. So community colleges that are serving the largest number of financially needy or low-income students will get more funding. Is that correct? Well, so let me tell you, um, the way the formula is structured, there is actually a three-year phase-in and a three-year hold harmless provision. And what that means is that no college, no district in the state of California will receive less funding than they did in 2017-18. And I think that that's really significant because that sets a floor that allows this recognition that colleges have received literally billions of dollars of additional investment under the Brown administration over 
the past few years. And so we're asking that that investment also be coupled with a commitment to improve student outcomes, which we think is very reasonable and certainly necessary when we know that right now only 52% of our community college students are successfully reaching their college goals within six years which we find pretty astonishing. Yes, but just to clarify, so the 20% for low-income students is also tied to some performance measures or not? So the, the final category, the 20% for the student success allocation is tied to performance measures. And within that, the, the final category, the 20% that's tied to student success, there are a key set of metrics that are focused on including the number of degrees and certificates awarded, transferring to four-year colleges and universities. Also, I think a really important addition is, is an inclusion of a living wage within the first year of program completion. But only under that 20% will colleges receive an additional weight for financially needy students who meet those goals. And you mean living wage. This would be somehow measuring if the students after they graduate would earn a living wage in the labor market? Yes. Wow. Do we have the capacity to measure that right now? That is a great question. As you know, in California, we do not have a robust intersegmental data system that tracks uh, pre-college through career. But we do believe that with some MOUs and work that we've done with EDD, we will have an opportunity to find that living wage data. And this also is a strong source of encouragement to make sure that we're accurately capturing and utilizing that data. Is the purpose here to kind of the thinking that if you put more money on the table, that colleges would be more motivated to make sure that these students succeed? In other words, as an incentive to do better, or is it to actually give the colleges the money to do the job that we are expecting of them? I think it is a combination of both, and I think we should see at the institution level you know, a willingness to do things a bit differently than we have in years past through a student-centered lens, which we're excited about. I could see how some faculty or college administrator would say, wait a minute, we are not doing this for the money. I mean, we are doing our best as it is, so suggesting that we're going to now do more because there's money attached to it they may kind of find that a bit insulting if they say, well, we're already doing the best we can and the money is not, you know, that shouldn't be what motivates anybody. So I have to tell you, um, in the same way, I have not um, embraced this idea that third week of enrollment funding results in faculty, you know, failing more students and having them repeat classes. I, I don't necessarily believe that having a funding formula that moves away from third week of enrollment is going to all of a sudden um, on its own incentivize faculty for helping students cross that finish line. What I do think it does is it recognizes that additional targeted resources need to go into vulnerable populations to help them reach their full potential. That was Jesse Ryan, Executive Vice President for the Campaign for College Opportunity. We also talked with Larry Galizio. He is president of the Community College League of California, which represents all 114 colleges in the community college system, about his thoughts on this pretty major change in how community colleges are funded. I would say it's very significant for several reasons. I mean, one being the fact that 
just the size and scope of the California's community college system, right? We're the largest public system of higher education in the nation. In the state of California, we're, we have more students than the Cal State University and the University of California combined. And also we're talking here about $7 billion in funding for the institutions. So just at that level, the size and scope, it's, it is very significant. I think additionally, the formula itself, you have resources or money which is linked directly to serving traditionally underserved students and focusing on and encouraging not just enrollment, but success for low-income students. And that's, I think, very significant and important. And finally, I'd say it reflects the nationwide change that we've seen over the last 15, 20 years for community colleges where traditionally it had always been, we are the open access higher ed institutions, and that was the primary focus. We continue to be that, we have the open door, but now also there's more of a focus on outcomes or student success. Many other states have some kind of performance-based funding system and I have to say, we've looked at the research somewhat, and it's very equivocal. It doesn't, uh, it's not necessarily something that uh, translates automatically into uh, student success. First of all, how unique is what California is doing compared to other states? I think this particular formula is significant for the percentage of dollars, both the amount and the percentage of dollars that we're talking about here. Uh, many of the other states have not had the, the high percentage of dollars going into uh, performance or outcomes funding, so I think that's pretty unique. I think initially having focus on underserved students with money directly linked to low-income students is, is something that's very positive. Another unique element, though, was how quickly this was done, all done in one legislative session, and I know that's created uh, a lot of question marks and, and some consternation. But in terms of the formula itself, I don't think it's horribly unique. You are suggesting that there was some concern that this happened so quickly. And I guess one of the factors is this was Jerry Brown's last uh, last budget. And if he was going to get this done, he would have to do it now. Uh, but was that one of the concerns happened kind of too quickly, perhaps without enough consultation? Yes, I think that's indeed a concern that's been expressed by many. And the league is not going to defend the process, the so-called sausage making, right? What we've tried to do is just adapt and then as quickly as we can provide the best information and guidelines possible. You know, not everything that the board of the, the CEO work, work group that was created out of from the league board was adopted by the legislature and the governor, but I do believe there was, there was an influence. We sought a more, a longer phase-in approach, but at least there is a phase-in approach. So yeah, you can't always have it exactly the way you would like it to uh, to turn out. And last question. I think what this new formula will mean is that those colleges that are serving the most challenged students will actually be getting more money to serve those students. Is that correct? It depends who you ask. I, you know, I mean, I, that is certainly the intent. And so, again, you have directly the grant that looks at Pell Grant 
and, and low-income students and gives a premium to the colleges that enroll those students and then gives a premium in resources for the success of those students, whether they earn a degree, uh, earn a certificate. So at that level, uh, that is certainly the goal. That was Larry Galizio, who is president of the Community College League of California. We'll obviously be tracking closely how this unfolds in the next several years. Well, talking about targeting funds, John, uh, there was a development on the K-12 level where the legislature decided to target $300 million to the state's lowest performing students. Originally, the idea was that this would go to African-American students. So how did this play itself out? Yeah, that's right. It's $300 million and it's one of the single largest expenditures for K-12. It's a one-time funding. And it will go, as you said, to the lowest performing students as measured by how they are in the lowest level of the tests on math and English language arts. John, I just have to ask you, doesn't the local control funding formula already target funds at these low-performing students? That's an interesting question. It, the, the funding formula targets groups that have traditionally been low-performing, low-income students, English learners, foster students, and homeless. They are lowest-performing on a number of measures, but that money goes to them regardless of their performance. In other words, you could be a low-income student who does quite well, but you're counted as in that group and you get the money. Shirley Weber said, no, I, I think we ought to perform. And Shirley Weber is the assemblywoman from San Diego. That's right, a Democrat and a well-respected member of the assembly for years. She was a retired professor from San Diego State and a member of the San Diego Unified School Board. And she said, no, I think it ought to be targeted to, money ought to be targeted to students who are in the lowest performing subgroup who are African-Americans. She also is African-American. She said, historically, they have underperformed. We should be targeting this. And that was her bill before the legislature. And she talked with Governor Brown and, and his top uh, administrators, and they negotiated a settlement. One reason was Proposition 209, which is the 1996 proposition, which said state funding cannot be targeted towards any ethnic or racial group. So That's it the, raised that. 209 is the affirmative action ban. That's right. Exactly. And that... Uh, and he raised that concern, so she said, well, let's reach a compromise. The compromise is this money, which amounts to about $2,000 per student, will go towards the 150,000 students who tested the lowest. So it will go to low performance, but it's open to all, regardless of what race and ethnicity they have. Of this, about 12,000 students will be African-Americans. Shirley Weber hasn't given up on this issue because she thinks that that it is a serious issue that the legislature must deal with, which is the low, historically low performance of African-American students due to low expectations or racism in the system. It's complicated. But for now, she's given that up. Well, just to clarify, the money, this $2,000, doesn't go to the student specifically, yes. right? It just right. goes to the district to spend on those students. That's right. And the same thing with funding for under LCFF. Does It's not like a money that follows a backpack. It goes to the district where the students are enrolled. One interesting thing about this is that to get this funding, districts will have to write up something and send it to the state superintendent of public instruction, their plan for performance. And then two years later, they have to report back and say, well, 
have we accomplished what we tried to do? And that report will go to the legislature. It's a hint that the legislature may impose a little bit tighter accountability requirements than under the local control funding formula under Jerry Brown. It's just an inkling. We'll see what happens next year. And just to clarify, we say this every time we discuss this topic, but I think it's important to note that when we're talking about African-American students doing poorly on these standardized tests, those are the average scores, because obviously we have many African-American students who are doing incredibly well and are succeeding. But we're talking about the average average scores here. Right, absolutely. But uh, Dr. Weber would argue that, in fact, even... African-American students who may not be the score the poorest, nonetheless may be underachieving and should receive some additional attention to figure out why. Okay. Well, very interesting to see how the state is maneuvering through this actual ban on affirmative action, which has restricted the kinds of programs and funding that the state was able to do. Right. Under this program, it's not an issue. John, one thing we know we're going to be discussing next week is the Janus ruling from the Supreme Court. Long awaited. Next week is the last week they can issue this ruling. Everybody's anticipating that this will go against public unions, including the teachers' unions in California. So we'll be discussing that at some length next week. It's a major decision. Let's spend some time on it. And we run out of time for This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks to our sponsor, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation. You can find us on iTunes and at edsource.org slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. Next week.